Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to a roundtable collaboration of the New Books Network. I am Kristen Turner, a host of New Books and Music, and I'll be the chair of this roundtable. I'm here with my colleagues. Hi, my name is Emily Allen, and I am a host as well for the New Books and Music and as well as the Celebration Studies channels. And I'm Nicole Coleman from New Books and German Studies. Hello. Today, we'll be talking to Kira Thurman about her book, Singing Like Germans, Black Musicians in the Land of Bach, Beethoven, and Brahms, published by Cornell University Press in 2021. An award-winning book, Singing Like Germans, is one of those publications that was eagerly anticipated by people in a wide variety of disciplines. So this interdisciplinary conversation seemed the best way to explore the many different aspects of Dr. Thurman's research. Beginning in the 1870s, Singing Like Germans covers a century of Black musicians performing classical music in Germany and Austria. This sprawling book takes on how and why Black musicians came to Central Europe from their homes in North America, Africa, or the Caribbean to perform classical music, and what their reception reveals about German ideas of race, nationhood, and musical culture. She traces how the political tumult of 100 years of war, Nazism, and the division between East and West Germany contributed to the changing circumstances of Black musicians in the area, and also how ideas of race remained remarkably consistent in all that time. Kira, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for having me. So we just wanted to start this conversation off by letting you tell us a little bit about yourself and um, how you came to write Singing Like Germans. Sure. So I am uh, an associate professor of, as of like two days ago, basically, of uh, history, thank you, history, German studies and musicology at the University of Michigan. And um, 
how I came to write this project is a very long story, but I'll try to keep it short, which is that I think for a lot of academic projects that started in grad school, um, that I had come into a PhD program at the University of Rochester studying with my dissertation advisor, Celia Applegate. And the way that I would jokingly tell people is that I had thought I was going to be a 1789 to 1848 kind of gal, uh, meaning that all of my work was going to be about German romanticism, about literature and music and nationalism. Um, and so I knew I wanted to do something about music and national identity in Germany. That's why I had um, sort of gone to that particular program. But I also became committed to thinking about um, Blackness and anti-Black politics and rhetoric in German history. And so um Really, it was a course I took my second year of grad school that that allowed me to start putting everything together. I took a course with a wonderful professor named Beverly Weber, who is now at UC Boulder, and a course called Communities of Color in Germany. And we, um, in that course, looked at Turkish-German communities and Turkish-German culture and then Afro-German culture. And that was really my first kind of exposure to it. Um, and... And in that course, and the reason why I think I'm mentioning this is because I had never really encountered the term Afro-German, even though I grew up in Vienna, Austria. And I remember being so floored by all of this and, and asking her several times, are you sure this is a legitimate area of research? You know, and Bev Weber had to reassure me and be like, yes, you can absolutely do this. And so then in that course, I started thinking about how can I combine my interest in art music, classical music and national identity and um, and blackness, thinking about blackness. And so that's what led me to look at black classical musicians in Germany and Austria. That's a long answer. Yeah, thank you so much. And I loved hearing a little bit more about your background. Um, and you really see all those resonances in this book, right? Especially, you know, with the number of channels even represented disciplinarity wise here, you know, um, with your background about this, um, can you talk a little bit more about the interdisciplinary of your work? And in other words, what uh, academic areas do you think your book would best speak to you? Yeah, um, you know, when I started out my journey in grad school, what is now becoming ages ago, I suppose. Um, I had always made it a point to have one foot in musicology and one foot in German history. Um, and then I guess another foot, maybe I'm uh, some sort of tripod or something, and another foot in German studies, I suppose. Uh, but, um, you know, so my undergraduate degree is in piano and in music history. So I um, I always had a really strong musical background. And, um, and so then when I made this transition to cultural history, German cultural studies, and the like, I still wanted to figure out all along how I could keep, uh, you know, stay in the world of musicology, I suppose. Um, I think I'm the only child of a parent who was devastated that their child left the music world and to become a professor of history and not music. I think my mother was like kind of upset with me for a while, uh, but it's fine. Right. So, um, and, and so when I think about my book, I think that, yeah, in a really lovely way, I think it actually accomplished even more than I could have hoped, um, speaking to audiences in German history in musicology and in German studies, definitely. Yeah. I also felt really when I was reading that I, that different audiences could get 
different things out of the book, which was really, really interesting um, when reading. So you structure your book in three parts and mostly in uh, three historical periods, which is 1870 to 1914, 1918 to 1945, and 1945 to 1961. As a German studies person, these dates, of course, mean something to me. Um, But is this what drove you? Was it the German history part that made it this century and these periods or was there something else also in music could you talk a little bit about that sure yes about my stubbornly long time frame that was a headache for everybody involved uh including maybe perhaps above all myself um i think there are a couple of reasons why i chose to do it that way one is that i had an advisor who had written a long durée her first book a nation of provincials for example is a large sweep of history so um i I perhaps just assumed that was normal, or I assumed that like that's just what people did or you could do. Um, and then, uh, so that was one reason why I think I chose that long time period. I should say I started off first in the 1960s. That was the first major case study that I had found was um, this opera singer named Grace Bumbry, who went to Bayreuth in 1961 in Germany. So I had started off with that case study back in graduate school with Beverly Weber. And then my, for me, at least, the question was, how far back in the past can I go? Um, and that's what led me to um, basically try to trace things back as far as I could, which led to the 1870s, really as early as 1853, with an Afro-Cuban uh, musician in particular traveling and studying at a conservatory of music in Leipzig. Um, so so that was sort of my approach uh, in terms of logistically uh, was like, let me just see how, like what names I can find and how far back I can go. Um, but ideologically, you're absolutely right, Nicole, that there is something else going on here, which was that I think, and I'm glad I stuck to my guns here, even though, again, this was a headache for everybody, but, um, but that I had a suspicion all along that one of the arguments that I wanted to make was it would that it was predicated on me being able to compare black musicians across time right and ask like what actually changes in the rhetoric across time um and which of course is a historian's bread and butter right change over time you know um change in continuity rupture these kinds of things so that was part of what i wanted was to think about like how does the rhetoric about Black musicians change? Like, does it change? Does it not change? That was one of my questions. But then the other thing I wanted to do with this long time period is get past this really annoying problem of, I think, perhaps, you know, in German history or German studies in particular, of um, siloing Black people to a certain time period, you know, so I was concerned that if I only did 1945 to 1961, people could be like, yeah, but of course, you're, you know, that's when they were there. Or of course, that's sort of what happened. There's a way that I could imagine people making, ex- like, treating this story as an exception to the rule, if that makes sense. Whereas if I kept pushing back in time and 
and revealing this much longer transatlantic history, then there could no longer be this rhetoric about, oh, well, that was just that one time period when things were open, or, oh, but that was just this one moment, or, oh, but that was just in West Germany, or, oh, but that was just in East Germany. So I think I was I was deliberately stubborn about that, even though it caused a lot of headaches for everybody involved, I should say. Um, and an example of a headache at various times when I started um, my, you know, on the tenure track after I had finished grad school, uh, a couple people, very well-meaning, you know, sat me down and were like, are you sure this isn't two books instead of one book? Is there any way you can save yourself here, some of this headache, by turning it into two books? You know, maybe one is just until 1933, and then part two is after 1933. Uh, but I was pretty convinced that it needed to be told in one long durée, so to speak. And I think it paid off doing that work. Go ahead. Yeah, thank you so much, Kira, talking about sort of your approach of going back. I was curious how you might also see your book um, as being a model or a way to inform the way we teach, you know, this history and whatnot um, of, like you were saying, try not to box in these musicians into one period. Do you see this inform your teaching and do you, could you see this as like a model in the classroom as well? Oh, interesting. Um, I... I I don't, uh, yes and no. I mean, I don't, I still haven't entirely figured out how to integrate my own research into my teaching. I almost prefer to divorce the two from each other. But I would say, because I teach a Nazi Germany class um, once a year to about 140 students, that one of the things that does become important to me, which I talk about with my students, is um, ignoring what we think of as clean breaks, you know, and that I'm not the only one saying this, that German historians have been calling for this for a while, for a long time. So one of the greatest inspirations to me um, in terms of books that I read was a book called After the Nazi Racial State by um, Rita Chin, Heide Fehrenbach, Atina Grossman, and Jeff Ely, which basically argues, like, why do we keep assuming that racism magically died in 1945 with Adolf Hitler's death? Like, can we stop doing that, please? Right? And so there's a way that we can have these really, like, two tidy narratives of 1933 as the beginning of something or the end of something, 1945 as the beginning of something or or the end of something. And so really trying to figure out how to push through these clean, nice, you know, nice, neat boundaries, I think becomes important for, for opening up certain kinds of conversations that people think of as closed, you know? And so maybe I'm trying to think of a way to illustrate that, that especially with 1945, as I, as I argue in my book, you know, um, being able to say, yes, here are examples of the same rhetoric of Black musicians coming up again that we saw in the 1920s, that we saw in the 1890s, you know, even though, yes, the political context had changed, and yes, people are trying harder and trying better in some contexts, but nonetheless, they're still drawing back on older repositories of knowledge to, to inform how they're understanding Black people in Germany, right? So there's something important about, about pushing through these boundaries um, that uh, that I see, of course, in, in my research, and that a little bit when I when I teach, like my Nazi Germany class, where I I don't end by saying everything magically gets better in 1945, but by instead seeing like look at all of this far right racist rhetoric that's been popping up, you know, in the last several decades. It also has its own origin story after 1945. 
Well, to pick up on Emily's question about, and, and also what Nicole, what you were talking about with Nicole, you have this sweep of time period that you're looking at and you're saying, you know, that you're want, wanting to push back against these neat, I don't know what's a good word, neat um, chronological changes or, you know, neat boxes of chronology. But the other thing that you do like that is that you, almost all the music, not all, but almost all the music you discuss in this are, is this very canonic Austro-German repertoire, right? There's a reason that you call it Bach, Beethoven, and Brahms, right? That really is the music <laughs> that you um, talk about. And, and as a musicologist, um, that makes total sense to me because this is a really important repertoire for classical music, but also a very contested repertoire. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the, the, um, how this paradox that happens in music works in your book, which is that on the one hand, this Austro-German repertoire, starting with Bach and, and you know, going into the early 20th century is um, supposedly completely universal. Like somehow this music speaks to everyone in the same way. It's this universal language. It's, it is the common lingua franca of, of classical music. And it's also incredibly German and is the basis of a lot of German um, rhetoric of national identity. So can, can you talk about how that, that friction there works with the kinds of, you know, the reception of these black musicians, why are they singing this, that kind of thing. Right, right. Um, yeah, thank you for bringing that up. And I should say, I'm talking to you all, just as an example of this, I'm talking to you all with a somewhat scratchy voice after blowing out my voice on Monday, or was that Tuesday, as I think perhaps Kristen knows, um, screeching the soprano line of Brahms' German Requiem for this summer sing-along. Um, the way that I've been jokingly saying it is like Brahms was trying to assassinate me uh, and take my life from beyond the grave. Like it was horrifying, like horrifying how many high A's and B's are in uh, are in the, the German Requiem. Um, and I bring up that example because there's a way that it's just assumed that choirs are supposed to sing that piece. It's just assumed that um, you're supposed to sing Mozart or you're supposed to, um, you know, sing uh, Bach and things like that. And so, yeah, this is where actually I see the world of um, historical scholarship and musicological scholarship coming together um, in in arguing that it is not a coincidence that the music that we assume is quote unquote universal is German music. Um, you know, that the music we sent into outer space, like a Bach recording, right, is is a German uh, piece of music. And this is what the work of my dissertation advisor, Celia Applegate, did, um, as well as Pamela Potter and others Um was to to point out the the Germanness of this canon, and that that's sort of the irony, right? Is that all other kinds of music get called um, national music? So um, if you know, at least if you're studying at a conservatory of music today, you learn about quote unquote classical music, and then you might learn a piece by a Spanish composer like Albanese, but it's like, oh, but that's Spanish. Or you learn about the Russian composers like like Modest Mussorgsky, and it's like, oh, well, that's Russian. You know, but Mozart doesn't get called German or doesn't really get called under this label. So um, so there's a way, in other words, that this that the Austro-German canon, as like musicologists complain about, right? There's a way that this that this this comes to dominate 
the classical music repertoire in the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, and the great irony of it is that I think, as Kristen already pointed out, because it's presented as uni- universal, uh, it means that other people start picking it up. Right. And so that's sort of almost like this boomerang effect. Um, and I think I say at one point in my book, like if German and Austrian audiences were surprised that black musicians were performing, you know, Bach in front of them, they shouldn't have been like this music had long traveled around the world. And that was kind of the point. Right. And that's sort of how, um, again, this is musicologists kind of grumbling. This is how like Austro-German musical hegemony works. Right. Is that it sort of picks up and goes and goes elsewhere. Um, and other people come to also not only believe in it, um, but espouse it. And I think it's that latter part um, that creates tension. Right. Is when other people also start to begin to claim it um, as theirs and perform it as theirs and make it part of their own traditions. Um you know, so so I think I just wanted to provide a little bit of, of context for that, that, that that's exactly what's going on with these musicians that I uncovered is they are are hearing and being told that this music belongs to all. And so then they're saying, well, then why can't I do it, too? Right. Um, that then if that is the case, then I have every right to perform this as much as anybody else. Right. Um, and that can become or that was in, you know, the 19th and 20th centuries, often this radical act of claiming this music um, or insisting on having this music and loving this music when uh, certainly white people and white audience didn't want that. So, I mean, I think your other part of your question, and I don't know if I'm taking too much time or not for this, but, you know, your other part of your question is about then, okay, we see that that African-Americans in particular, I should say, are claiming this music, studying it at conservatories of music in the United States uh, and elsewhere, coming to Germany to study it, coming to Austria to study it. Um, you know, But then your other question is, okay, then how are German audiences understanding that, I think is what, I, is what I'm hearing, right? And, and I think that, that was initially my main question. I think that is still the, one of the biggest threads in my book is that, um, yeah, there are complicated mental gymnastics at work, I think, for the predominantly white German and Austrian audiences encountering uh, Black classical musicians performing in front of them. They have to do all kinds of they come to all kinds of interesting conclusions, shall we say, as to um, why and how a black person who they've often thought of as somehow inferior is performing classical music, which they've oftentimes thought of as superior, right? And they have to figure out a way to, um, what's the expression? Is it like square that circle or something like that? They have to figure out how to do that. So it's a it's a complicated gymnastics that's underway in the 19th and 20th centuries. Yeah, and kind of picking up where we left off, we've been talking a lot about sort of like the German Austro-Germanic side of this, but, you know, with a lot of the performers you're talking about, their Americanness came into play, right? Like, you started to talk about in some of the chapters about how specifically African-Americans were received versus Afro-Germans, you know, performing. So can you talk a little bit about some of these tensions, tensions, excuse me, of nationalism into how these performers were received, as well as this maybe being foreign in Germany, too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that and that's complicated. It's complicated in so many different ways. I feel like I'm going to be like repeating that a lot. But, you know, so on the one hand, I would say it's complicated because 
across the 19th and 20th centuries, there has been occasionally what I would call a flattening of Blackness, meaning that um, Black musicians can get reduced to um, really anything, right? So if you're an African-American musician, the assumption being that somehow you must be from Africa, right? Um, And locating your Blackness in Africa, regardless of what the African-American musician says, right? Uh, That's a through line throughout. But then at the same time, certainly by the 1920s, there's also a growing, stronger transatlantic sense of African-American music and African-American culture in the form of jazz and spirituals. And so then there's also that way that Blackness gets understood. But I think you're right then to say, I think there are a couple of different things that I want to say, that African-Americans could only be understood in certain terms and functioning in certain kinds of boxes for some, I should say, right, for some audiences. Um, And that even Afro-Germans by the 1920s are being asked if they can perform African-American music like jazz, even though they have no familiarity with it, because there's such a demand for it, because there's such an expectation of a certain kind of auditory Blackness, right? Um, And that's supposed to sound a certain way. So there is that. So I'm trying to figure out, in other words, I'm trying to articulate here something like the expectation and drive for a sonic Blackness, to use perhaps Nina Sun-Eidsheim's expression or Jennifer Lynn Stover. There's a sort of expectation here for a kind of sonic Blackness that drives a lot of the music world and the cultural industry um, in the 19th and 20th centuries. At the same time, to add a complicated layer onto all of this, it's also because these African-American classical musicians are understood as American that they have more opportunities, perhaps, than Africans, than Afro-Germans, than others. And then also, I would say, which I kind of got into in the book, but I think um, can certainly articulate now, It's also because they're understood as African-Americans and that they are coming from a country that oppresses its Black population, that they can find white allies in Germany and Austria who are willing to back them and who kind of claim them in moral terms as much as in aesthetic terms um, as, as part of the classical music world, right? So, and by that, I mean, occasionally you find um, white patrons, white donors, um, elite musicians saying, I am standing with this musician because of the racism they experience in the United States. This is me taking a, a kind of an anti-racist stance Right. And insisting on their place and on on their belonging in a greater international musical marketplace and international music world. Um, So which is an interesting thread. It's it's we can call it all kinds of different things. I mean, on the one hand, I think there's a lot about it that's really fascinating and exciting and also um, really moving, deeply moving and that they can find these allies who are willing to. Uh, work with them at times when white Americans wouldn't. 
you know, and then I also have some of my like undergrad students, like when we go over this material can be like super cynical and be like, they're just doing it because it's easier to like black people when they're not in your own country. Right. So then you can also make that claim too, I guess you could say, but, um, but yeah, so the politics of nationality work in many different ways, I think in my book. Yeah, and I, I also thought it was really interesting to think about how do people come to Germany, right? So as African Americans, you come possibly from a Jim Crow background, you have Europe as this liberating space, whereas Africans might come through Völkerschauen or other way where colonists are very clearly oppressing, um, violating their their independence. Um, and do you think that plays into it then too? Oh, absolutely. I love how you phrased that just now. I feel like you said it better than I did, you know? So yeah, yeah, yeah. That, um, that you're right. Oh, it's so interesting to think about how the nationality is also determining the genre of music that there is, that we find black people performing, right. Um, or being asked to perform or the ways that they can perhaps try to defy that and perform something else. Uh, so yeah, I think that's absolutely spot on that like African-Americans, uh, oftentimes tied to a certain kind of class politics, uh, whether or not is true, but being perceived perhaps sometimes as more middle or upper class or performing middle-class, you know, bourgeois, piety or Victorian, whatever, you know, yeah, there's a way that they can enter these realms and spaces of the concert hall and the opera house in a way that we don't see uh, Africans uh, in the 19th century in German, under German colonialism, for example, being invited in. Absolutely. Um, perhaps we can sort of start speaking in more specific terms. And um, the very first case study you use uh, this really, um, uh, extensive is uh, the Fist Jubilee Singers coming from the U.S. Um, they are a group of Black uh, students who are raising money for their university, Fisk University. And I'm wondering if you could start there and tell us how their, you know, what their reception was and how their reception then becomes, sort of sets the stage for what happens afterwards, I guess. Yeah. Um, right. That's a, thank you for, for beginning that with that way. Um, so I, let me think, <laughs> trying to remember what did I write about this? So, um, so yes, the fifth Jubilee singers are definitely the, one of the most prominent, uh, sort of first ensembles to come over from the United States. Uh, that is an African American ensemble performing, um, Mostly uh, spirituals, I should say. Um, they're, that's why they're somewhat of an outlier in my book, which is mostly about classical music. Um, but that you're right, Kristen, that what they do is they set up a couple of really interesting um, foundations, I suppose, um, that kind of enter German and Austrian discourses about Black musicians. Uh, first, they're able to, I think, successfully illustrate a more complex range of musical repertoire and musical sounds, perhaps as well, than audiences had anticipated. Um, and then also they really confound audiences because 
Um, they are not Africans. In fact, a countess even comes up to them being like, why are you dressed like a Westerner, right? And and then Ella Shepard, who um, wrote a diary and kept track of it the, the entire time, which is amazing for a historian to find, um, you know, she has to tell the countess, like, we're not from Africa. Like, we're not, that's not where we're from. Uh, we're from the United States. So, you know, so there's a way that they, I think, start setting up this interesting conversation about the range of abilities that Black musicians can possess, so to speak, right? Um, and as well as the, the, the potential, I, should, I suppose one could say, for um, musical greatness, musical performance, and the like, um, that in a way that confounded or surprised listeners. The thing that I... I I kind of trace in the book, but um, we'll say now that I became eventually skeptical of is that across the 19th and 20th centuries, like people will use the language over and over again, that like black people have so much potential, um, but they never seem to be able to reach it. Like even in the 1960s, like you see it towards the end of my book, then, you know, uh, somebody saying like black people can have so much potential uh, in 1960s communist East Germany, if they can like unleash the chains of capitalism, right? So there's all this, all like the, the language of potential, like they have lots of potential to become great. So we see that um, starting in the 19th century with the Fisk Jubilee singers. And yeah, that they do nonetheless, I think, um, really shock and deeply move, I should say also, audiences with their performances of African-American spirituals. Yeah, kind of going further um, into the book, starting more like with chapter two and that kind of thing. Um, you know, a lot of performers, as you're discussing, once they get over there, um, they're really used, like navigated that gig economy in terms of networking and, you know, marketing and that kind of thing. So can you talk a little bit about like, once they cross the Atlantic, some of these entrepreneurial, I guess, efforts that you saw going on once they were there. Yeah, and I think I thank you for bringing that up as well because I think this is what hopefully also um, separates, not in a negative way, but distinguishes. Maybe that's a better phrase. I don't know uh, this kind of work that I was doing from I think questions about jazz musicians and black popular entertainers is that we have to remember that the classical music world has its own social rules and components and norms to it um, that black musicians also wanted to follow so um, I, I think this is why at some point in the introduction I take a moment to try to explain that and try to stress like look um, black classical musicians, are worth talking about on their own because their lives are so different and function so differently from that of black jazz musicians or other black popular entertainers who are traveling over like Josephine Baker, right? So the social world and the social norms of classical music in the 19th century, which is chapter two of my book, as you're bringing out, you know, requires that you have, for example, a letter of introduction um, to bring to you to a conservatory of music. And so you need a teacher in the States to vouch for you. It means that you've already taken lessons. It means that you um, have established yourself well enough with a certain kind of teacher that um, they're willing to correspond, right? And so you bring that letter of introduction with you to um, a conservatory of music in Germany, but then it's not over then either. You still have to audition, Right. You still have to actually demonstrate that you can play and that you're not just faking it, I suppose. Um, you know, and so so these kinds of rules and norms of behavior and of 
you know, aesthetics and things like that dominated absolutely how so many of these African American musicians coming over, like how they live their lives. They're expected to, you know, find this teacher in Germany. They're expected to audition for them. They're expected to take certain kinds of classes. They're expected to go to orchestra concerts in their spare time or opera opera performances in their spare time and buy tickets in the student section, which is always rowdy and full of ragamuffins and all of this kind of thing, right? Um, So there's a whole other social world that they are expected to join and that they're eager to join, I should say. They want to join um, and they want to participate in in order for them to become themselves better musicians. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, continuing to chapter three and maybe also bridging into chapter four and returning to kind of the question (laughs) of racial listening, if you want. So how the media responded and discussed the black musicians, I thought was very interesting how in chapter three, it was mostly about exotic blackness if if the blackness was really uh, emphasized in in the reports and how the media discussed um, the musicians but then others were kind of I don't know they disavowed the blackness to make them potentially look more sophisticated and then in chapter four you talk about the post-world war one era when um, black people were not seen as exotic but made out as threatening because of of the so- French colonial soldiers mostly so I'm I'm thinking about um, so listening to black musicians seem to always be contextualized historically and refracted through the ideologies of the time and I wonder whether you can Walk us through that a little bit. Yeah. I think when I love the expression refracted through the ideologies of the time. Uh, yeah. So to get back to, I think, how Germans are understanding or are making sense of these musicians, right? Um, that And that you're right to think about it as a time-sensitive manner uh, or a time-sensitive matter, I, I, I should say. Um So, yes, in the 19th century, the thing that I found so fascinating and interesting is that, um, you know, as Nicole is pointing out, there's a way that um, these musicians are understood as exotic, but ultimately not threatening, right? Um, So how quickly they're exoticized and how quickly they're understood as sonically different, even though what they're performing is considered, you know, quote unquote, universal classical music, right? So... And I think the best illustration of that for before World War One, to my mind, is Hazel Harrison, who is a pianist. She's an African-American pianist um, from Indiana who performs with the Berlin Philharmonic in 1904, which is wild, you know, and she performs excerpts from two different piano concerti. And we see how German audiences are trying to make sense of her and how they exoticize her, certainly, you know, in a couple of different ways. Um, So one, I think, concerns her gender, which is that, um, which I'm sure Kristen and Emily can also speak to, perhaps as uh, musicologists, um, you know, in the room, uh, which is that, you know, for the longest time, there's this discourse about like, women can't be serious pianists, like they can't, you know, like our delicate lady fingers mean like we can't really rigorously play the masculine music of Beethoven or whatever, right? So there's a way that like, you see that kind of rhetoric, like, 
coming up with uh, Hazel Harrison. Like, how does she have the energy and the stamina to perform like piano concerti, right? Um, and they kind of conclude she doesn't, right? So they're like, well, maybe, yeah, this, like, you know, this is why her performance wasn't as strong or couldn't have been as strong. So that's one thing that we see. But then in terms of exoticizing her, um, yes, she's performing a Chopin piano concerto, a Grieg piano concerto, and um, and one critic wrote in an archive, and it, you know, and I found this document in, in an archive at Howard University in the States, uh, which was really interesting. But one critic wrote that, um, you know, okay, she's able to do Chopin because African Americans are a melancholy people, he deems, and Chopin is melancholic music. So who better to perform the melancholic music of Chopin than African Americans who are already a melancholy people. So you see this like really interesting way that like, there's a way he cannot seem to accept that she's a black woman performing Chopin, like there has to be an explanation for it. Um, so it's things like that, that you see um, before World War One, that somehow explain that explain away black talent or try to make sense of, of black talent when it comes to classical music. And then after World War One, as as Nicole already said and picked up on so well, what's so interesting, which I didn't see coming, is that after World War One, it's it's no longer kind of cute that you have black people doing a Beethoven sonata, now it's become a threat. And that I found to be such an interesting transition and it shows the way that you're that as you already said you know the ideologies of the time get, get kind of refracted you know um through uh through their acts of listening certainly absolutely i'd love to follow up on that to talk a little bit more about those same interwar musicians and particularly roland hayes and marian anderson who are two really important figures in your book that you return to several times and what what interested me was that they were particularly well known for performing leader, which are German songs, usually with just one piano with piano accompaniment. And most of what the repertoire they were singing was not designed for the concert stage. It's incredibly intimate music. It was designed and thought of as something that people would sing in their homes and um that they had that was part of like a social environment of, of that's quite intimate and private. And a lot of times the, the poetry is equally intimate and private. And so here now you have these two black excellent musicians standing up in a concert environment, singing this very, you know, this um, very important repertoire for German nationalism and for classical music in general, but also this incredibly intimate one. And, and to me it was, I mean, I, to have a non-German who is not a native German speaker to even sing that repertoire takes some courage in front of German audience. <laughs> Can you talk about like, how did they deal with seeing what, what to them was so foreign and primitive and, you know, what they were saying was primitive and also this whole thing about um, the threat that, that black people presented singing this very intimate, very special repertoire. Yeah, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking again about like, I think, I think the importance of, I like to sort of splice up a question and think about it geometrically or think about it, you know, and and, 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 and break it down, I think, in a bunch of different components. So so one thing that I was thinking of as, and as we've been talking in general, that I think could hopefully be helpful to the listener as well, is that is to 
important. One of the things that I learned years ago from a mentor of mine named Jean Peterson, who's a French cultural historian, was that like we can think of cultural history as like both production history and reception history. Right. Um, and, and, and I think having that in mind helps you to focus on agency and having that in mind helps you to focus on uh, what kinds of questions you can ask and answers you can get. Right. And if they're matching up, if the evidence is matching up to those questions and or answers, so to speak. So as you were talking, I was thinking about, um, you know, in terms of ways to maybe break this down and think about this with Roland Hayes and Marian Anderson, that they are performing German leader or art song in terms of the production side of things. Right. Like why they're doing this, like how did they get to the stage? How did they get to this moment of performance? You know, they're performing this music in part because as Kristen knows, and and perhaps Emily also, as you know, like they, they can't get gigs in the States, right? They can't perform in opera houses in the States. Um, so they're not actually performing operatic repertoire very much. Um, so then the question becomes, what can you perform in front of an audience if an opera house won't hire you, right? Um, and so then it's, it's, it's German art song, it's German leader, it becomes popular. The other advantage, I think, for them choosing this repertoire, focusing still on the production side of things, uh, is that this repertoire doesn't require costumes or a set or props. Uh, it's enough to show up in theory in some kind of demure dress or wearing a tuxedo with a single, you know, piano on stage and an accompanist um, and focus on your artistry and focus on the music itself. Right. Or at least this is the this is the argument posed for why this repertoire um, matters and why it's important. So um, so I think I'm bringing this up to, to think about like like how it is that they came to perform this music. Right. And why it became so important for them to perform and that the irony here getting back to German music as somehow universal is like I don't think that they necessarily thought of what they were doing as performing that German national identity they thought of it as like performing the top music of the day right which happened to be German and of the Austro-German canon blah 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 the thing that all musicologists grumble about all the time right so <laughs> yeah yes yes so um you know so I think that they didn't think of it as somehow um, that they had transgressed a national boundary when they performed it, um, but that nonetheless they were going to take seriously the requirements necessary to do it, right? Which did mean immersing themselves in the world of German poetry. It did mean um, becoming linguistically fluent. It did mean, you know, spending whole years um, in Germany and Austria, becoming sort of culturally, like, you know, culturally immersed, so to speak. Um, and that that was necessary for them to, to better embody and perform the music that they loved and the music that they could perform on a stage without worry, right, to a certain extent about um, uh, about harassment. Like there's a way that, that they could perform, they could get hired to perform this music. They could book a concert hall themselves to perform this music in a way that they couldn't if they were um, dedicated to um, trying to perform at a major opera house in the United States. But then, as you're saying, Kristen, on the flip side, when we think about the reception, it's exactly because they're so dedicated to 
linguistic fluency and cultural immersion and memorizing Goethe and, you know, whatever, right, that they then confound German audiences who then have to wrestle with the very serious question of who gets to perform German national identity. And what if it's not tied to whiteness, as they had assumed? What if anybody could perform German identity? What if anybody can be German? That's the question that that these performances raised accidentally or not. And then it becomes on the German, it becomes, you know, on the German audiences to wrestle with the meanings of that. So that's the reception side of things, where they then have to respond to this deeply moving, beautiful and accurate, so to speak, performance, and then figure out what to make of it. Just just to follow up real quick, Marianne Anderson seemed to have done this very well in the sense that she really wins over the audience. And I, I really would love for you to retell a little bit uh, this one, one part of your book, which I thought was so moving, which was when she left Austria, when she finally could not stay any longer. And she gives this final concert. And it was a, it was really a moving uh, section. Can you talk a little bit about what happens when Anderson finally has to leave, that she, she really can't stay any longer? Yeah, right. And so this is, you know, one of the narratives that plays out certainly in the 1920s and 1930s is that as musicians like Roland Hayes and Marian Anderson are coming to uh, Germany and Austria and performing and living and settling down there and making friends and having teachers and all of it, we also are witnessing the rise of the Nazis, right? And the rise of a far right that is dead set against um Anybody that is not perceived of as white Christian, whatever, belonging to the like belonging in German society and living in German society, even, and so um, which means that when the Nazis come to power in 1933, it's pretty quickly afterwards uh, that you start seeing black musicians leaving. If you could leave, if you could get out, Afro Germans did not always have that luxury, right? And they would try, they would try to escape to France, for example, but then got caught in France, you know. Um, so so. But for African-Americans who could leave by 1936, to be honest, if you could get out, you'd gotten out. Um, But also what they're doing is going south. If they can't be in Nazi Germany, um, they go to Austria, right, which um, is considered to a certain extent more free. And they're not the only ones doing this, I should say. Jewish musicians in Germany are also going to Austria. So Bruno Walter, the um, uh, Jewish conductor uh, who had performed uh, or conducted the Berlin Philharmonic, you know, he gets fired. He then goes to Vienna, um, for example. So, so there's a pattern, in other words, of a lot of musicians fleeing Germany and going to Austria in the immediate, you know, early years of, of the Nazi state. Um, and so Marian Anderson is one of those, right? Um, that she had been living in first, she'd been in Germany in 1930. She'd been bopping around performing in Europe pretty much ever since then. Um, and that she had settled in Austria pretty firmly by 1935 um, and was living there um, pretty much extensively between 1935 and 1937. And so, um, and that the Viennese audiences in particular rallied around her um, and adored her because, well, she was an excellent musician, but also because a lot of them, again, chose to see her as a symbol for a certain kind of open musical world that welcomed everyone. And with the rise of the Nazis, you know, what's so interesting is that 
by the end of Marian Anderson's stay in Vienna, towards the end of 1937, I mean, really in 1936, she's already receiving death threats. She's receiving uh, bomb threats, um, certainly her and Bruno Walter for performing together in 1936 in Vienna, you know, and so to go to her concert was to take a moral and ideological stand. Right, that this was the this was exactly the kind of music that you wanted to support, and this is the world that you wanted to live in, you know. And so, but when she leaves, she you're right, she leaves in November 1937. It's only a few months away before the Anschluss, um, the annexation in 1938, and the writing's on the wall for a lot of people, and they know it. And so you see in the reviews a certain kind of. I think I used the word on purpose, a kind of wailing, a kind of mourning and sadness um, for this last swan song of hers. And, you know, that she's a beacon of light in a time of darkness and she's about to be snuffed out, so to speak, or that it's about to be snuffed out. So um, so she really does become this, you know, one of one of the critics, I'm trying to remember how he says it at the end, like her concert gave people hope for those who still believed that all men were equal. Right. And that all men were created equal. So, you know, so um, so she's absolutely this this symbol of a certain kind of of Austrian life or European life that people still believed in, even as it was under attack and under assault. Is there something like thinking about what you're saying there and kind of what the way you're describing, like the instrumental performances, is there something about these vocal performances that had an effect on people that say instrumental did not, right? Like thinking about your book title, singing like Germans, the vocality of it, like, is there something with that that you think, yeah. I mean, as a, I mean, as a pianist, I should say I'm a pianist outright. Let's like clear the air here. Let's get that out of the way that I'm, I sometimes, you know, get a little bit snippy here and being like instrumentalists can deeply move people. It's not just vocalists that can do that, you know? Um, So a part of me is a little bit, a little bit salty at that. Um, But you're right to think about the, about the voice and what it's doing. I think, for me, it's complicated. I can see how the voice can be so deeply moving um, and that I have been deeply moved by singing, um, by operatic singing, by, um, by, by leader singing, by, by all of it. Um, you know, I think if I have skepticism or resistance here to what you're asking, Emily, Emily it's not... It's not that I don't think that the voice isn't moving and beautiful and wonderful, but I also have become aware of how people have used their expectations and assumptions of the voice to block it, to, 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 to box in black people. Right. And so that's why I think I'm nervous about saying that like the voice is somehow more important than instrumental music or something like that. And rather, you know, there are a whole like list of complicated reasons why we have more uh, black people perhaps re- represented in the vocal arts than as pianists and as uh, clarinetists and other fields. I was talking to students about this the other day. Like, you know, we have, um, we're doing a, a project on the history of Black students at the music school here at Michigan. Um, and Black students are overwhelmingly overrepresented in voice. And we have like one or two students studying like harp, for example. And I was like, well, you, you know, 
like like the harp is not an instrument you just accidentally stumble across, right? It's not something that you just like see in a grocery store and you're like, I'm going to try that one. You have to like actively seek out the harp, right? It's not something that just happens. So, so there's a way that, in other words, instrumental repertoire is more difficult to um, commit oneself to or come across, I think maybe both. Um, yeah, but at the same time, that said, of, you're right that there's still something so powerful about vocal expression that can, it seems like it can move people in a way that um, they themselves were were surprised by, like the Fisk Jubilee singers performing and Queen Victoria weeping, like uncontrollably, and like apologizing for it later, right? Um, you know, so there's a way that, 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 that vocal music can certainly move people. Again, though, for me as a pianist, I also want to insist that like, there's, you know, instrumental music is also great too. I understand, I'm a clarinetist. I was just like thinking about some of how those messy issues you were getting at there um, with some of the vocal performances. So thank you. Yeah, moving into the post-World War II period, in your third part, you speak about three spaces, West Germany, Austria, and East Germany. And of course, people in all three countries had lived in a racist regime for at least a decade or more. And as you said before, there's no switch that would turn off racism. Um, And so... The three regimes after the war positioned themselves very differently um, and used black musicians to re-educate and rehabilitate or even to blame others in other parts in these spaces. Can you talk us through these self-images and how black musicians were meant to support these images? Oh, thank you. And thank you for putting it that way. Yeah, so this was the headache in the book. Like this was the moment when people were like, maybe you should stop now. Like maybe you should drop it. Like maybe don't include West Germany and East Germany and Austria, right? Like, can you drop Austria from your book? And I was like, no, because I grew up there and I was like insistent on including Austria. But um, right, so this this was the headache. Um, But I love how you just put it. And I wish that I could have like figured that out for myself years ago that it's exactly their self-image right that becomes so fascinating and how they think of these black musicians in relation to their self-image you know that after 1945 in the Austrian case certainly there's a way that like there's this veil of innocence that covers up a whole host of crimes right and so um which means then there's a more open anti-black rhetoric, I feel like you find um, about uh, black performers in Austria after 1945. But then at the same time, what's so complicated is like, you also see more of them in the Vienna Staatsoper than anywhere else, right? So like, that's, that's, that's what makes it so fascinating, like how quickly they are cleared to just continue on as business as usual, you know, um, in Austria, which then means also for them, they're excited because they can start hiring internationally again. And that can include Black American performers or not, right? And so it's so fascinating how that works in the Austrian case, um, you know, because of their label of like Hitler's first victim, et cetera, et cetera. And then um, certainly the cases of West Germany and East Germany are really fascinating because I think, as Nicole said so well, there's a certain kind of self-importance with their self-image, right? And a way that certainly they position themselves constantly against the other as like the true bastion and land of freedom and like the true land where like, you know, we're the land of democracy. So that means that we can um, have all kinds of international singers on our stage, Um, you know, but then 
Right. So we see that certainly in, um, I should say, the West German case, the idea that we are supposed to have learned from our past, from our Nazi past. So that's a come we now invite black singers onto our stage, which is something that wouldn't have been done under the Nazis, which is true. I'm not saying that's not true. I, um, But nonetheless, looking at these different stagings, right, then... I start finding other kinds of problematic things that are going on, like a refusal to hire black men to sing in operatic roles because that would make them a romantic lead. And that's too scary, right? Um, So things like that that appear um, instead. So there's a claim to openness because we are now in a new democratic West Germany. Um, But then at the same time, old patterns of behavior of like, highly sexualizing black men being afraid of them, you know, that I saw in the 1920s and 30s, like that's back, you know, or perhaps it never went away, you know. And so, but then in the East German case, um, as Nicole is also alluding to here, there is a way that East Germans also pat themselves on the back and say that like they are the true land of anti-racism and anti-imperialism dedicated to the anti-capitalist struggle, and that they are they are really the best place for black musicians to come and finally be free to perform the music that they want. And the thing that I've always found so fascinating about the communist East German case is that they actually do come the closest to getting the point, which is like allow black musicians to be both black and perform classical music. That does not have to be a contradiction. And they come the closest to articulating that and saying black people should be able to do whatever they want. And here in communist East Germany, we support that, you know, at the same time, their listening practices then constantly undermine that by, you know, racializing the voice and by insisting that black people only perform certain kinds of genres like spirituals, which black musicians like Aubrey Pankey found extremely frustrating when he was living there. Um, Yeah. So, and again, in terms of the self-image thing, the East German case as well, it's about them praising themselves for being better than West Germany. Like we treat our black musicians better than West Germany treats their black musicians, which we see in, you know, a bunch of different opera scandals in the 1950s involving black singers like Vera Little on the opera stage in West Berlin, you know, and so East German critics and newspapers could say, well, unlike you know, West Berlin, which treats their Black opera singers terribly and boos them, you know, on stage, we welcome them and support them and applaud them on our stages. Yeah, so it's true. It's to- you're totally right. I mean, this is, again, this is like years of research, you know, later, I'm like, that's right. That is what's happening here, <laughs> right? <laughs> that you finally see it. But yeah, that's, that's, I love how you put that. That's exactly what's going on. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. absolutely in the book, right? And, <laughs> and especially the the GDR case, I just found so fascinating. So thank yeah. you so much for that. Oh, thanks. 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 Yeah, I, I found that so fascinating, too. And again, that I, I love how we do see these, these moments of articulation of like a strong anti-racist message, as well as I think I would say some what we would call bureaucrats or arts administrators really being sincere about it, you know, and trying to figure out how they can create um, this better world, you know, even while at the same time, again, you know, the politics of race are nonetheless informing musical decisions and choices. Well, that may be a great way to stop it, to end this interview, because all through this book, <laughs> you, I think, come back over and over to, to that same theme that um, 
uh, no matter sort of the sincerity or not, the true anti-racism or not, um, that uh, that that there's no way to really get away from these questions of race, and that and and that they recur over and over, um, and they may look a little different some days. They may, or, you know, in some periods, or they may. Um, uh, the the cast of characters have changed, but you're seeing this uh, both the change and the const- uh, con- the continuing through time. So um, this has been an amazing conversation, and uh, we have only begun to scratch the surface of all of the complexity that you mine out in in this amazing book. And so I hope our listeners will go and read it so they can uh, can get the rest of of all the amazing uh, things that you talk about in this in this. Um, in this book. So thank you so much. And we'll end this interview as we usually do, which is what are you working on now after finishing such an amazing project that, as you say, started when you were a student? Thank you. Uh, Well, I'm certainly working on taking naps and going on walks with my dog. And then uh, in the meantime, I would like to keep working in two different directions. So one is thinking about a more general history on uh, Black people and classical music that continues some of this conversation on the politics of race and classical music. And then uh, not to get too into it too much, but on the German studies front, I've become extremely fascinated by noise complaints. Um, and right, left field, out of left field, but thinking about noise complaints as a way to try to um, manage and police communities of color in Germany um, across the 20th century. So, um, you know, and you can even take it to the 19th century. So, for example, the idea that Jews are noisy or Jewish no- neighborhoods are, are noisy. Um, and then later with sort of Turkish German communities, Afro German communities. So, I'm thinking about tracing and mapping out digitally uh, noise complaints in different urban centers. Well, you so, that's so many musicologists take that turn into sound studies, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. That's me too. I'm doing it too. Yep. Well, thank you so much, Kira, for joining us. My name is Kristen Turner, and I'm here with Emily Allen and Nicole Coleman. Um, and this is a roundtable with Kira Thurman for the New Books Network. Um, we have been discussing her book, Singing Like Germans, Black Musicians in the Land of Bach, Beethoven, and Brahms, published by Cornell University Press in 2021. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me.